Well, good morning, church family. Unfortunately, I'm not able to be with you in person today. On Monday of this week, I was in close contact for around three hours with someone who received a positive test result for COVID-19 late on Tuesday evening. So out of an abundance of caution, I'm going to be preaching remotely this morning via video. I've taken two tests, which have both come back negative, and I have zero symptoms, so I'm pretty certain I'm in the clear. But our consistent approach has been to be cautious out of a love for neighbor. We take the precautions we take because we have consistently said we are giving away our rights for the sake of others. This is what Christ calls us to do. Well, having said that, please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis chapter 42. This is week six in our study through this series I've entitled Joseph from a pit to a palace. However, it's also week 40 in our verse-by-verse study through the entire book of Genesis. And we find ourselves really in the very middle of the Bible's narrative regarding one of the most significant and pivotal figures in all of Israel's history, namely Joseph. Now, as I've mentioned before, there's more real estate devoted to Joseph in the 50 chapters of Genesis than to Adam, Noah, Isaac, Jacob, and even the patriarch of patriarchs, Abraham. And so what we learn of Joseph in these final chapters of our study in Genesis this year, they're incredibly important. Not just to have a clearer grasp of ancient Hebrew history, but to have a clearer grasp of the God of ancient Hebrew history. For God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If we can discover something of God and his character and his nature and the way he deals with Joseph in this passage, we will discover something of the way in which God will deal with us. I'm preaching a message this morning I've entitled, God's Purposes in His Providence. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a situation or an environment where you felt like the cards were stacked against you from the start? We've all heard that phrase before. It really comes from the world of gambling, particularly poker. Having the cards stacked against you means someone, perhaps the dealer or maybe another player, they have intentionally arranged the deck so that you are dealt all the bad cards and they're dealt all the good cards. You know, it's hard to win a hand. Actually, it's impossible to win a hand if this happens to you. Now, it's one thing to feel like the cards are stacked against you in, let's say, poker or rummy or uno or even go fish. However, it's an entirely different thing to feel like the cards are stacked against you in life, especially knowing the dealer is the Lord God. He is the one who providentially sees and orders all things. Now, this is exactly how Joseph's father, Jacob, feels at the end of our focal passage for today. In fact, notice what Jacob says in verse 36 of this chapter. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. What is Jacob saying? He's saying to his sons, my whole life, the cards have been stacked against me. But what we see in the perspective of the whole biblical narrative is this. In actuality, the cards were not stacked against him by the dealer, God himself, but he had actually stacked the cards overwhelmingly in Jacob's favor. You see, God has his purpose, his perfect purpose, behind the providence. This is, in fact, what Paul communicates in a simple yet profound way in Romans 8, 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
And friend, God is for every single believer. And so the answer to Paul's rhetorical question is this, no one and no thing can be against us if God is in fact for us. Now you may maybe hear this morning saying, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I've dealt with. You don't know my cantankerous boss. You don't know about my meddling in-laws. You don't know about the financial hardship I'm going through or the deep loss I've experienced. And I would say, no friend, I don't know. But God knows. And God says to you, believer in Jesus, no one and no thing can ever be against you if I am for you. Jacob, he felt like the cards were stacked against him. And I have no doubt in my mind with the ordeal Joseph's brothers are going to be put through in this chapter, they're going to feel like the cards are stacked against us. And surely Joseph, from the years upon years he spent in the pit and then in slavery and then in prison, he could have concluded, the cards are stacked against me. But what we will discover is God has his reasons for stacking the deck the way he does. God has his purposes in his providence. Well, let's begin by reading the first paragraph of our focal chapter, verses 1 through 5. This is God's word. Hear it. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now the opening of this chapter indicates to us that Jacob and his family are living in a devastating situation. There's the obvious difficulty of the fact that famine has hit not only in Egypt where Joseph is, but all the known world. This included, of course, the land of Canaan where Jacob and his family resided. Everywhere, people are desperate. And here's a reality that this communicates to us this morning, friends. God's people are not exempt from the common trials of life. The rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. But word has spread that there is food in Egypt. So Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt to buy grain in order to sustain their lives. But under the surface, there's an even deeper famine going on here. The famine of familial congeniality. The famine of fatherly love. The chapter opens with Jacob saying to his sons, why do you look at one another? This is a question that's laced with contempt. What are you lazy boys doing? sitting around, staring at each other. And we can sense in Jacob even a hint of distrust in his sons. Notice again, verse four. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. There's not only this obvious favoritism here in verse four, but I think Jacob is also communicating a sense of distrust in the other 10 brothers. Perhaps he never fully bought the story they put forward about wild beasts destroying Joseph. Maybe in the back of his mind, there always lurked this suspicion that the boys had something to do with Joseph's death. And so now he absolutely will not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with them, the only other son from Rachel whom he loved. After all, hadn't his sons proven themselves to be violent 
and perverse men. I mean, think about it. His oldest son, Reuben, committed incest with his father's concubine in an attempt to usurp his father's authority. And then the second and third sons, Simeon and Levi, well, they were guilty of premeditated genocide and the slaughter of the Shechemites. And then there's the fourth son, Judah, who impregnated his daughter-in-law, Tamar, because she disguised herself as a Canaanite prostitute. Now, these sons may have covered their crimes regarding Joseph to some degree, but they couldn't hide their character from Jacob. In fact, notice what Jacob says at the end of the chapter in verse 38. He says, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he's the only one left. It seems the cards are stacked against him, overwhelmingly so. But friends, there is a great dealer behind the hand he's been dealt. There are great purposes behind God's providence. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. And there are three purposes in particular from this passage I want us to consider this morning. The first one and where we'll spend the bulk of our time is this. Number one, God's purposes behind the providence was to awaken a sense of guilt over sin. To awaken a sense of guilt over sin. God will providentially allow and even cause events and situations to arise in our lives in order that he might awaken in our souls a sense of guilt over our own personal sin. That's one of the profound things God is doing in this passage. Let's read now verses 6 through 20. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. Verse 10, they said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. By the time these brothers arrive in Egypt, Joseph had been in power for at least eight years. They come into the very territory where they knew the Ishmaelite traders were heading when they sold Joseph for a paltry sum of a slave price, 20 pieces of silver. 
And now, 20 years later, here they are. Surely, as they traveled to Egypt, they would have had some thoughts about it. They might have even discussed it along the way. One brother might have asked, Hey, now what are the chances we run into our little brother? After all, we did sell him to some traders who were, you know, heading to Egypt. Another brother might say, Nah, that'd be impossible. For one, I mean, if he ended up as a slave or a farmer or a brick maker, working in the sun all day long, he's not even alive anymore. Another brother might say, well, if he is still alive, he's probably slaving away in some obscure place far from the palace, and we're going to the palace. I wonder, whatever happened to Joseph? In all things being equal, those ideas are reasonable. If God hadn't stacked the deck... Because unbeknownst to them, they do meet their brother Joseph, but they don't recognize him though. He's now a clean-shaven, Egyptian-speaking ruler named Zaphanath Paneah. He's in his upper 30s now, and he's completely unrecognizable to them. He's the right-hand man of Pharaoh, dressed in flowing white linen, decorated with a gold insignia that identifies him as a part of the Egyptian aristocracy. They have no idea this is, in fact, Joseph, their brother. And so just like every other destitute foreigner coming into Egypt to get grain to sustain their lives, these ten brothers, they fall down on their face before Joseph, a striking fulfillment of the two dreams he had some 20 years earlier, which his brothers, by the way, had mocked him for. God works out his purposes perfectly. God will accomplish all his good pleasure. Now, although the brothers' sin of selling Joseph to the Ishmaelites was so long ago, and they wanted to completely wipe it from their memory, friends, it wasn't wiped from God's memory. God is determined to awaken in them a sense of guilt over their sin. In fact, notice the intriguing way in which God's providence paves the way for their repentance and confession of sin. First of all, there's a desperate time globally. The world is in a season of destitute famine. They're hungry. They're needy. And so God, listen, still today, he brings a sense of guilt over sin. It's often during a time of destitute need in other areas of our lives. I was recently having a conversation with someone and he said, now you don't think God had anything to do with so-and-so becoming our president, do you? I said, well, absolutely I do. There is no authority except that which has been given by God. You see, this friend of mine thought, wrongly so, that God would never be involved in some reprobate pagan becoming our president. Now listen, I don't know what's going to happen in the upcoming election. I don't know who's going to win and who's going to lose. I don't know which political party will have control of the House of Representatives and the Senate, or if there will be an attempt to pack the Supreme Court in order to accomplish some political agenda. I don't know any of those things. But I do know this. God is in control. Could it be that in nine days, at the conclusion of this next election, we will in fact be reaping the fruit of seeds that have been sown in our country over decades and decades and even centuries? And could it be that God is stacking the deck in such a way in order that he might awaken us? God might awaken his church to a sense of guilt over our sin? Guilt over sin long forgotten. Guilt over sin we've pushed down in the recesses of our mind. God brings about a global famine so that he can, at least in part, awaken a sense of guilt in these ten brothers' lives. And that's exactly what happens. 
This happens generally with the situation of the famine, but God awakens in them a sense of their guilt in other ways as well. Interestingly, all ten brothers go on this journey. Why? Because all ten brothers shared in the guilt. And providence is bringing all ten of them face to face with their iniquity. Further, the favoritism their father Jacob shows Benjamin must have reminded them again of the favoritism their father had shown to Joseph. Benjamin wasn't just a young boy anymore. He could have gone with them. But I think most pointedly, God reminds them of their guilt through the interaction they had with their brother Joseph. Now, as the text pointed out, his identity was not evident to them. But he knew exactly who they were. Sure, they'd added some wrinkle to their complexion and there were some gray hairs in their beards, but the identity of these 10 Hebrew-speaking Semites was unmistakable to Joseph. Don't you ever wonder what went through Joseph's mind at that point? Is my father still alive? Have they done to Benjamin what they did to me? What is the state of our home? So the way in which Joseph ascertains the answers to these questions is through an absolutely brilliant interrogation technique. It's something akin to a good cop, bad cop interrogation that's used by law enforcement today to elicit information from a suspect. He speaks roughly with them and accuses them of being spies, a crime worthy of death in Egypt. They vehemently, yet respectfully, protest. In fact, look again at the accusation in verse 10. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. But then he levels the accusation a second time. No, you've come here to see where our vulnerabilities are, where our defenses are low, so you can bring an attack against us. And then this second accusation provokes some more answers to the real questions that were in Joseph's mind. Notice how they respond the second time. We're your, your servants. We're 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. Do you notice how God uses Joseph's accusation to bring their treatment of Joseph to the surface in their minds? And one is no more. The brother they said who is no more is literally standing right in front of them. They tell this Egyptian stranger about their presumed dead brother. For 20 years, they've been trying to cover up their crime. And they come clean here to this stranger. Now, after they divulge more information about the family, he makes the accusation a third time. You're spies. I know it. So he puts them in prison for three days. Then finally, he relents and he sends nine of them back home and keeps the one Simeon. He says, I'll only release this brother when you bring back the youngest one back to me to verify your story. Now, why is Joseph doing all of this to his brothers? Is it for revenge? Well, there's nothing in the text that would indicate he's being vengeful. In fact, just the opposite. He's concerned for them. He has compassion for them. Well, is he doing this just to get more information on the family? Well, perhaps... But, you know, there are other ways he could have gotten information on the family besides this harsh interrogation. Well, maybe he's paving the way to get the whole family together, one big reunion. Well, again, perhaps, but I think ultimately what Joseph is doing as the servant of God is he is awakening in his brothers a sense of guilt over their personal sin. But listen, God doesn't bring us 
to a point of guilt just so we wallow in that guilt. No, it's so we'll be brought to a point of repentance and confession over our sin. You see, 20 years earlier, they were jealous of Joseph. Why? Because they thought he was a spy, that he would go back and tell daddy what they were doing wrong. And now Joseph is accusing them of being spies. Now, in spite of their protestations of innocence, Joseph throws them in prison, just like they threw him in the pit while he protested their cruel treatment. Well, after they languished in that prison for three days, uncertain of their future, Joseph brings them out again and back into his presence. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. God? This Egyptian ruler is invoking the name of God? He speaks of fearing God, the God of Israel? I talk about a prick in their conscience. Up until this very point in the narrative, you never read once that they ever even mention the name of God. And here, this supposed Egyptian prime minister brings God to their remembrance. Now, does this all work? Are they awakened to a sense of their own guilt? Well, God is in it. And friends, when God is in it, it always works. So the brothers start talking to one another in Hebrew. Look at verse 21 and following. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Now I want you to remember, this happened 20 years earlier. But all these reminders are bringing it to the forefront of their thinking. Verse 21 says, They said to one another, Each and every one of these ten brothers are thinking about their own personal guilt in the matter regarding Joseph. They're saying to each other, they're talking to each other. They say, in truth, we are guilty. They're confessing their sin publicly. Their souls are distressed. Friends, this is exactly how the Holy Spirit works, both then and now. He brings our sin to the forefront of our thinking and confronts us with it. And friends, this is a blessing. This is a gift. This is a grace of the Lord when he awakens in us a sense of guilt over our sin. And remember, they're doing all this confessing of sin with an earshot of Joseph, who they think can't understand a word of what they're saying. But he hears them, and he understands it all. He hears how tenderly they speak of him in this state of their brokenness over their sin. And they used to call him all kinds of bad names. But now they refer to him as our brother. And Reuben, the oldest, calls him the boy, literally the young child. So what was Joseph's response? Well, look at verse 24. Then he turned away from them and wept. Joseph is overwhelmed at their brokenness over their personal guilt and sin against him. He pities them in their distress and he's moved by their confession. But like a surgeon who's not quite sure if his scalpel has gone deep enough to get to the bottom of the wound, Joseph, in the providence of God, initiates another response to his brothers, which would bring about this second purpose of God's providence. Number two, to work a holy fear in their souls. To work a holy fear in their souls. Look at how verse 24 continues. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. 
and Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. Well, what's happening here? His scalpel is going deeper. You know, they must have been shaken to their core on the way back home. And what a strange prime minister the Egyptian was as they talked amongst themselves. He's harsh one moment and he's kind the next. They now had to make the long journey home and figure out a way to tell their dad, one, this strange ruler has kept our brother Simeon back, and two, he requires in order to free him, we bring Benjamin to prove our story's true. Now, however, this trip wasn't a total loss. A donkey could carry about 100 pounds of grain or so. If there are 10 brothers with 10 donkeys, well, that's 1,000 pounds of food they're bringing back home. But they know not everything is resolved. And so they stop at an inn for a night's rest on their long journey. And notice what they discover in verse 27. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them and they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? Friends, God is working a holy fear in their souls. Their hearts failed them, the text says. They turned trembling to one another. And then the first time in the entire book of Genesis, the name of God is ever recorded as coming from the lips of these men. What is this that God has done to us? And so the God who has awakened guilt over sin in their souls has also brought into this, them a fear, a holy fear before God. And isn't that the way, child of God, that he worked with you? When you became aware of your own sinfulness, when you became mindful of that fact that you have sinned against a holy God and broken his commands, and this holy God is also a just God who must punish sin. He will by no means allow guilty people like us to go unpunished. When you understood that, didn't that bring in you a sense of holy fear, a sense in reverence for God that's palpable? The text says their hearts failed them. So they make their way back to their father, Jacob, apparently without checking all the other bags of grain. And then in verse 29 through 34, they tell their father, all that happened. Look at it with me. When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We've never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. Now, after they recount this astonishing story to their father, they discover something that will bring this fear to a head. Look at verse 35. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. 
You think they were afraid before? Now they're really afraid. It was personal for each of them and everyone. Why did God do this through Joseph? To increase the fear that these men felt and experienced. Friends, if repentance is true, if confession of sin is legitimate, it must go deep. When we realize we come into the presence of a holy God as a guilty sinner, the cut to our souls is deep. The, the, the conviction over sin is massive. God has, as it seemed, stacked the deck against these ten brothers in a significantly profound way. But in reality, God had stacked the decks, the cards, in their favor. He was dealing to them all the best cards. He was dealing to them the aces, the face cards. Why? In order that he might work a sense of guilt over their sin and to work a holy fear in their souls. Listen, this fear of God is a grace from God. Let me say this again. This fear of God is a grace from God, which is why the slave trader John Newton could poetically pen these words. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." But now I want you to see this third purpose behind God's providence. Number three, to reap a godly repentance through sorrow. To reap a godly repentance through sorrow. You know, in, in the New Testament, when Jesus gave the Beatitudes at the introduction of his Sermon on the Mount, there are these pithy short statements that on the surface almost seem contradictory. But those Beatitudes illustrate powerfully that the kingdom of God is, is not like the kingdoms of this world. You see, to ascend within the kingdoms of this world, there are certain traits and attitudes that are expected. You must be bold. You must be assertive. You must look out for number one. You can't worry about stepping on other people if doing so will actually benefit you on your way up to the next level. But friends, that is not the way of ascension in the kingdom of God. Those who would go up in God's kingdom must go down. Those who would be high must be brought low. And those who would be first must what? Become last. This is the kingdom way. And that's the way Jesus put it in the first three Beatitudes, especially. Look at Matthew 5, verse 3 through 5. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We are in an upside-down kingdom, this kingdom we're pursuing. And the way to know God, the way to experience God in his full fullness is through spiritual poverty, through spiritual mourning and sorrow, through genuine meekness and fear before God. Let's see how this sorrow takes root, even in Jacob's heart, as we read the rest of this chapter. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons. If I do not bring him back to you, put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he's the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you're to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. These men had not seen this kind of sorrow in their father for 20 years. Back then, they attempted to comfort their father, but he refused to be comforted. And he proclaimed then a very similar thing. I'll go to my grave mourning the death of my son. And again, I think Jacob 
had a suspicion in, in the back of his mind that these 10 sons had something to do with the death of his beloved son, Joseph, that they had something to do with that bloodied coat of many colors. They don't know what to do with this deep, profound sorrow of their father. So the oldest, Reuben, he speaks up. And what he says, what he suggests, it's absolutely absurd. It's ridiculous. But his heart was pressed with guilt. His heart was pressed with fear, now pressed with sorrow. He says, kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back to you. Now, there's all kinds of things that are wrong with the suggestion that Reuben makes. But even still, deep down in his heart, there is a godly sorrow. There's a godly grief. You know, earlier in the chapter, we saw how he told his brothers, I told you so. I told you we shouldn't have treated the boy this way. And now it's almost as if it's too much for him to bear. But friends, this chapter ends really on a sorrowful note. This chapter ends <clears throat> with a deep grief-stricken Jacob. It seems the cards are stacked against him. But watch this sorrow, this grief, in God's purposes, it has a reason. Notice how the Apostle Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 7. Paul says, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Friends, godly grief, godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation. You see, because guilt over sin or fear of the judgment of a holy God and even sorrow over the far-reaching impact of our sin, it's no good if it just stays there. It's all for naught if that guilt, that fear, that sorrow, it doesn't drive us to repentance. Let me close with this. Many years ago, when my children were small, somehow or another, we came into the possession of an orc mask. An orc is a scary creature in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I don't know where we got the mask from. I know we didn't buy it, but somehow it ended up in our home. On one occasion, we were downstairs in the basement and there was the orc mask and I was with Trevor, who was around two or three years old at the time. So I took the mask and I put it on and kind of looked at Trevor. And he looked at me with this bit of confusion, kind of like, okay, I know you're my dad, but that is an ugly face, much uglier than normal dad. But then what did I do? I let out a blood curdling growl with the mask on. And so what did Trevor do? Well, he didn't run away from me like you might expect. He ran to me and he grabbed a hold of my legs for safety. Why did he do that? Because he understood, even in a childlike way, that the source of his fear, the source of his sorrow and grief was also the source of security and salvation. He ran for salvation to the very source of his fear. This is what God is doing with these 10 brothers in his providence. And this is what he is doing with you. God is stacking the deck. God is accomplishing his purposes through providence in order that you might run to him, that you might cling to him alone for salvation. God uses the devastation of a worldwide famine, of a global pandemic. Why? To bring back together a fractured family. God brings wounds in order that he might provide healing. As we'll see in several weeks in chapter 48, Jacob, who thought the cards were stacked against him, has incredible perspective on his deathbed. Notice what he says. 
the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. What's he saying on his deathbed? God has been my shepherd this whole time. He's been leading and working and wounding for my good and for his glory. And who is this angel, this messenger who would redeem Jacob from all the evil that would befall him? Friends, it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, the one who took our sorrow and our guilt and our fear in order to save us from all those things. This is the purpose behind God's providence. And what a grace from God that is. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. And that leads to my last thought. In God's providence, we may experience famine in order that we may obtain freedom. Let me pray for us as we close our time together today. God, I do thank you for the gift of this morning and the opportunity we have as a people known as Lookout Valley Baptist Church to gather in this place together. Lord, I thank you that your spirit is with us and that very same spirit who indwells us as Christians also inspired miraculously this scripture that we've studied today. And so God, I pray you would, through your spirit, make personal, individual application to each and every one who is gathered today. And Lord, I do also pray if there's someone today who has not been moved to repentance because of their guilt over their sin or their fear of a holy, just God or their sorrow over the impact and effects of sin. And I pray today they would repent, that today they would stop trusting in themselves, but trust solely in Jesus alone. And Lord, that they would turn to him by faith and in repentance, believe. Lord, I thank you for meeting with us today. I thank you that you are carrying us through, even as Jacob confessed, as a shepherd for our souls. God, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll now respond to the Lord's word through singing together.